Hey everybody, it's Real Killer Country. My name is Brittany Ransom and I am alone this week. But if this is your first foray into When Killers Get Caught, I just want to let you know how it normally runs. Usually, uh, Brian and I would discuss a relevant recent true crime story and then I would lead you down the path of a well-known or lesser-known killer, talk about their life, methodology, how they got caught, and then Brian ends our segment with a paranormal palate cleanser. But today things are a little bit different and I'm by myself. So we're going to do things with just the deep dive. And before we begin, I just have to handle some of the bills aspect of podcasting. So if you're someone who loves this podcast, we would love you to implore, like to help us uh, with our current push on patreon.com. One killer slash one killers get caught. Due to issues outside of our normal control, Brian and I have been recording in less than ideal situations with lots of roommates and kids, and the vibe has kind of been killed for some of you. If you support our podcast and become a Patreon, you can help us purchase soundproofing equipment so that we can have this be the quality that you expect from us. And we also are going to look into hiring an editor, too, for those situations where we do mess up and it can be fixed. Now, for $2 a month, you get your name in a TikTok fan shout out at the beginning of the next month. $5 gets you access to four bonus episodes of the Conspiracy Podcast, uh, Patreon-only Discord, 10% off on merchandise every month and a shout out. $10 a month gives you access to everything else except your discount goes up to 20% and you can watch a movie with us on Discord or play a video game with everybody. Like I said, this is just to help the podcast become better and we hope you'll stick with us and work through kind of the growing pains of not having our ideal situation anymore. Now that we're done paying the bills. I'm going to jump into what we're going to talk about this week. And say I've been interested in Wayne Williams since I was a child myself. I found a book in my teens from James Baldwin. It's less of a book and more of a pretty intense, lengthy essay called The Evidence of Things Not Seen. And if you don't know, James Baldwin is an incredible writer about race and America because he lived through the times that were pretty intense. But... He was called from Europe to go to Atlanta and report on this case for Playboy of all publications. And he very much became ensnared in the sociopolitical aspect of a case where children were going missing roughly every few weeks to a month. And it was national news, but Atlanta almost didn't seem to care. The evidence of things not seen was kind of the story of the missing 23 black children between 1979 and 1981, and also his opinion on it. My very first entry into this case was learning more about the victims than the killer, which gives you a completely different perspective of the case. Baldwin posed doubt as to whether Wayne Williams had killed anyone at all. And I looked back into Baldwin's writings about this, along with a lot of other people in preparing for this week, pretty much pulling every book I could find, even those out of print, to get a better picture of these murders that wasn't so biased. Because there's definitely a lot of biased texts of this man did this and blah, blah, blah. And I think by the end, I'll leave it up to everyone listening. You'll decide if these crimes started and ended with Wayne Williams or if he's a man who was caught in the middle of something bigger that still hasn't been solved. I'm going to kind of section it off into three parts. 
We're going to talk about the crime and the investigation over two years. Then we're going to talk about the suspect. And then we're going to talk about the court case and conviction. While the descriptions of these murders aren't particularly graphic, I do still give a content warning because the journey you're about to go on today was emotionally exhausting for me. I'll leave it at that. So part one, the crimes. Before we can jump into the crimes, we need to talk about Atlanta, Georgia. Now, the city of Atlanta was founded in 1837, and it was called Marthaville at the time, and it's at the end of the Western Atlantic Railroad Line. This town started as a transportation hub, and even in 2022, it is still a transportation hub with one of the busiest airports in the U.S., the Hartsville-Jackson Atlanta International Airport, which sees roughly 103 million passengers a year pre-COVID. Atlanta is a connection hub for 220 domestic and international flights. And when you're a place where people stop and connect, you kind of become a beacon of culture. The city's most elite black colleges, Clark Atlanta, Spelman, Morehouse, were built in 1865, 1867, and 1881. It attracted the best and the brightest black students from America who were seeking education in the face of Jim Crow racism. Coca-Cola built their entire empire there. And if you keep up with modern stuff, you know that Tyler Perry has built his current empire in Atlanta, too. Now, by the early 1900s, this area, like Atlanta, had a well-off black middle and upper class. Uh, Auburn Avenue was considered to be one of the most affluent streets in America, and it was pretty much owned entirely by black people. Now, in the 1950s, neighborhoods where Black people have been denied entry began getting flooded with wealthier Black people. In the 60s, the Great White Flight out of Atlanta happened uh, thanks to the addition of superhighways, and it became the center of the civil rights movement in the mid-60s. When desegregation and government housing was implemented in the early 70s, the middle class and the upper class also abandoned Atlanta. For the suburban megamalls and the suburbs, like Cobb County, what was left is a de- was a declining downtown and areas like the set of our crime, Dixie Hills, a space where only the poorest citizens unable to leave were left. And it's interesting because by numbers, Atlanta's black citizens were better off than many of those in rural communities. But it's hard to tell people struggling with unemployment and crime that they're doing better. But this was a socio-political backdrop for the Atlanta child murders. And on July 21st, 1979, smack dab in the middle of summer, Edward Smith was 14 years old. He was an athlete who loved playing sports, watching sports. He was raised in the East Lake Meadows housing projects in Southwest Atlanta. He didn't really know his dad and his mom spent most of her time working to provide for the family. Since he was an older kid, he was able to do odd jobs and he tried to earn his own spending money. He was a street smart kid who didn't trust anyone he just met. He had a girlfriend, and the night of July 21st, he took her to a roller rink, and they left at 10 o'clock that night, and he never came home. Now, on July 25th, 1979, 13-year-old Alfred Evans didn't come home, and he went to see a kung fu movie. He grew up not too far from Edward and was also an athletic boy who did little odd jobs around the community for cash. Alfred also lived in a single-parent home, and he was very independent. Occasionally, he would stay out until the following day, so his mom wasn't worried at first, but when he didn't come home, 
She called the police and the police didn't really prioritize his case at all and said, since he sometimes hung out with older kids who got in trouble, give it a couple more days. And if he still isn't home, we'll look into it. Well, a few days later came and on July 28th, both Alfred and Edwin were found. Edward were found. Their bodies were together in a wooded area near Southwest Atlanta. Edward was still clothed, but Alfred was missing his shirt and shoes. He even still had money in his pocket, so it wasn't a robbery gone wrong. The coroner said that Edward, the bigger boy, had been shot with a twenty-two in the back, but Evans had been strangled. The police did a little investigation and did learn that the boys disappeared on different nights, but that they didn't know each other, and they just decided it was a coincidence that these two were dumped at the same site. This was Dixie Hills, after all, and Dixie was known for its crime by 79. Now, not all of the police were satisfied with that, and there were some auxiliary police work that was done with police going street to street to see what the boys had been up to that night when they disappeared. Uh, Atlanta PD received a tip that these were drug hits, and both of them had been seen smoking weed the week before they had gone missing. Family and friends denied it, but the police took that tip and kind of ran with it and shot the case. Now, the next child who went missing was a few months later. Milton Harvey, who was 14 year old, 14 years old on the night that he went missing. September 4th, 1979. He actually went to the bank for his mom during the day and just never came home. His mom reported him missing right away. And the police said that Milton must have run away from home with the money that his mother had tasked for him to deposit. There was no follow-up report. Atlanta PD wouldn't think about Milton again until his decomposing body was found in the woods on November 16th. Following victim was nine-year-old Yusuf Bell. He went missing on October 21st, 1979. He was playing in the street with his friends and one of the older neighbors asked him to walk two blocks to a convenience store to grab a couple of household items for her. She told him he could keep the change for helping her. And Yusuf was seen in the store buying the items and seen walking back towards home. He didn't show up. Just like the other cases, Camille Bell, his mother, filed a report and she was rebuffed by the police, which was pretty odd because nine-year-olds aren't typical runaways. It's not the typical runaway age. She told the police he does not, he's not the type to run away. He's a happy kid. He was just doing a neighbor a favor. He was found strangled 18 days later in an abandoned school near the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. His clothes had been washed. Our first hint that this was a serial killer and also that there were forensic countermeasures being done. Now, Camille Bell was the first person to kind of see these crimes link them and decide that something needed to be done. And all I could say is just bless Camille because she's a driving force over the next two years. She in fact demanded that there be an official investigation and they kept pushing back. They stopped referring her phone calls. So Camille reached out to the other mothers of children who had gone missing and created kind of a support group. The group began talking, and when the police refused to answer their calls, they ended up calling on the public safety commissioner to ask for help. That wouldn't get results until August, but in the meantime, more kids start going missing. Now, the killer waited 4.5 months before the strike 
before he started again. And my thought process on that was that perhaps it was because of Camille, because she was all over the community asking people to, you know, keep an eye on your kids, look out for each other. Regardless, March 4th, 1980, Angel Lanier was 12 years old and she went to school like regular. On her way home, she stopped to pick up some items that her family had asked her to. Angel and her mom, Venus, had actually just moved to Atlanta from Chicago. Her mom thought that it would be better for her to live somewhere there was nature versus a concrete jungle like Chicago. She was found on March 10th, strangled with a cord and tied to a tree. The police weren't sure about this one being connected to the others because in general, pedophiles and sexual sadists stick to one victim profile. But as we saw with Ted Bundy, sometimes they do switch up when they get desperate. Because Angel was killed in the same manner as the majority of the other boys, ultimately they do add her to the list of victims of the Atlanta child murderer. Unlike the boys, though, Angel was sexually assaulted and a pair of underwear that weren't hers were put in her mouth. Now, just one week later, Jeffrey Mathis is walking to the store to buy cigarettes for his mother when he didn't come home. And I want to lay something out there because this is now 1980. I was born in 87 and in the 90s, I did what these kids did. Like my grandmother would give me like a $5 bill and be like, go get me a pack of cigarettes. It's not right. And it would never happen now, but it definitely happened when I was a kid. So just putting that out there before people are like, what, why are you letting a nine-year-old go 10-year-old go pick up cigarettes for you? Things were different back then. But regardless, he didn't come home. He wouldn't be found for until February 1st, 1981. By victim number six, the press was already convinced there was a serial killer in Atlanta. And that's because the, America had already seen Ted Bundy and Ed Kemper and, and other serial killers in the press. So this became like a very media-heavy, media-reported case. The Atlanta child murders. And people knew about FBI profilers. Even though it was new, it was still exciting. And this was a, a big true crime case in American history. Interestingly enough, the police wouldn't reach out to the feds, but they themselves began compiling information and looking for patterns. And the biggest pattern being here that all of these children were black. Almost all of them were preteens. They were very smart kids who weren't the type to just hop in a stranger's car. Another thing that they kind of realized is that the crimes were deemed to be sexual in nature, but there was no sign of sexual trauma. And this is because the specific kind of killer, like a thrill killer or a power and control killer, don't always need to have sex with a victim to be sexually excited by it. The act of murder is what turns them on. They also enjoy the hunt. Unlike certain people like the green river killer the police were able to realize that this killer wasn't returning to the bodies another mark in the column of thrill killer because once the kill was done the excitement was over it was it's only as exciting when you you kidnap the person and you see the fear on their face but once they're dead they tend to just discard them and that was what it appeared to be here 
The worst thing about these sort of killers, of course, is that they're methodical, calm, and very patient. They usually, at least not in the beginning, don't take ultra risks. The Atlanta child murder had switched his kill method, but that can be easily explained because most first kills aren't the preferred method. Serial killers fixate and fantasize about murder for years before they do it, and when they do do it, they'll pick the easier method the first time before they gain confidence in their ability to kill them. On top of that, the child who was shot, Edward Smith, he was a tall, strong boy. He more than likely attempted to flee or fight back. And so the killer in that situation would have needed something that was fast versus when he changed and began seeking thinner, weaker prey that was easier to control and a method of killing that was a lot more intimate and personal. The kind of thing that you do to see the light drain out of somebody's eyes. Now, the next victim would give the police their first lead. May 18th, 1980. 14-year-old Eric Middlebrook. He received a phone call at his mom's house. He spoke for only a few minutes and then took off on his bike. Just like the other boys, Eric was a street smart kid. He wasn't the type to just hang with a stranger. Just like Edward Smith, Eric fought back. So much so that the killer hadn't been able to even take him to the woods. Eric was found bludgeoned to death behind a bar the following day. This was a deviation from the pattern, but he was still under 15, black, from Dixie Hills, and that was enough to include him in the list of this crime. But just like the other children, he was found in the community doing odd jobs for neighbors for spending money. The police for a moment, even questioned if Eric had been ambushed by two people because he had fought back. Now, one particular detective really paid attention at this crime scene. His name was Bob Buffington, and they took the normal hair and blood samples, but Bob had been reading about fiber analysis, and it was a new foray into forensic science in the late 1970s. Now, Atlanta PD didn't have the capability to do anything with this, but he bagged it. He wondered if it could be useful later. There were these red fibers on the bottom of Eric's shoes. Uh, interestingly enough, his lieutenant actually mocked him and said Bob should clean out all the lint traps in Atlanta, and that way he could close all of their cases. Still, even while they were laughing at Bob, they sent the fibers to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. And that crime lab, which was run by a man named Larry Peterson, analyzed it. And Larry thought this was a great find. They didn't have anything to compare it to yet. But he was like, this will be good for us later. Now, remember I said that the world had already seen the Bundy case and that had a lot of press. So with the Atlanta child murders, we, of course, got a lot of theory crafting, uh, conspiracy theories. Was this the fault of the KKK or some other white supremacist group? Could there be a black serial killer in America? Most, unfortunately, crime is interracial. People tend to kill who they know, where they know. It's the reason why the number one victim, at least in U.S. serial killers, are white women because white men are overwhelmingly serial killers. 
In this case, we have a black serial killer, more than likely. For whatever reason, though, the Atlanta child murderer decided to expand where he was picking kids up from. And on June 9th, 1980, uh, Christopher Richardson was the next victim who was actually heading to Decatur, Georgia to go to a public swimming pool. And he just never made it there. He would also not be found until the following February and he was strangled. Christopher was 12 years old. Now, Latanya Wilson was seven when she was abducted just a few weeks later on June 22nd, 1980. Latanya was abducted from her own home while her family was sleeping and she was found in October. There are doubts as to whether Latanya was one of the Atlanta child murder victims or if she was the victim of a copycat killer. Regardless, one day later, Aaron Whitey disappeared on June 23rd, just one day after LaTanya. He was 10. He was found on June 24th under a train trestle in DeKalb County. At first, they thought he must have been playing on the trestle and fell and died. But his autopsy showed that he'd been strangled. His family said that he had no reason to be so far from home. And there was no way that he was walking miles outside of Dixie because he didn't even have a bicycle. The investigators assumed that this killer obviously had wheels and he was somehow getting kids to get into his car and dumping them. Now, nine-year-old Anthony Carter is reported missing July 6, 1980, and about two weeks later, the night before he had begged his mom to let him play outside with the other kids. She, of course, like every other parent in Atlanta at the time, was just like, eh, maybe you should stay inside. And it was hot. The kids were outside playing hide and seek, having water fights with the hoses. There were other parents outside, too. So she figured this is the safest he could probably be, right? He promised he would stay with the other kids close to the house. And then when parents started calling their kids in after it got dark Anthony didn't come home and she waited and she waited and she reported him to the police on July 7th actually more likely she reported him to the police on July 6th because the following morning he was found outside of a warehouse in his neighborhood he was stabbed and because of the change in M.O., originally the police did not think he was a serial killer victim. Like many of the other cases, Anthony Carter fell to the wayside. Three weeks later, 11-year-old Earl Terrell became the next victim. Now, Earl wasn't like the other kids. He was a bit of a troublemaker. And he was known to run with older kids who also caused a lot of trouble. He was street smart and quick-witted, just like all the other ones, but where many of the other children who had been kidnapped before were kind of what the kids would call, you know, goody-goody, uh, Earl's aunt frequently had to deal with going to the school to deal with him. He was a little bit of a bully, but he'd never been in any official trouble. So it did deviate from the pattern. But Earl went missing on July 30th, 1980. 
He had gotten kicked out of a public pool for being roughhousing. He didn't want to pull his friends from their fun, so he just told them he was going to walk home. And that's when he got grabbed. Another thing that changed with this case was that Earl's aunt, who was the one who was taking care of him, got a phone call from a strange man saying that he had Earl. She told the police this, obviously, but they couldn't trace the call. And Earl was found in the woods next to Christopher Richardson on January 9th, 1981. Both of them strangled to death. Now, at about the time of the eighth murder, Camille Bell had had enough of being ignored. And so that was when she took a concern to the public safety commissioner, Lee Brown. The commissioner told her, I don't want to make anybody in Atlanta panic, which is ridiculous because people were already panicking. By August, 12 children had been kidnapped, including a boy named Clifford Jones, 13, who was just in town visiting his family for a few weeks in the summer. Clifford had learned from the other kids that the rate for turning in cans in Atlanta was good. So he was just gathering aluminum cans to go drop them off. His body was discovered August 21st, 1980, behind a shopping center dumpster. Just like all the others, or the majority of the others, he'd been strangled. Now, Camille and seven of the mothers from the support group formed the Committee to Stop Children's Murders, and Camille became the chair of the organization. The intention was to bring as much attention to these murders and pressure Atlanta PD to pay attention to the alarming number of children being murdered who are just being written off as runaways. The committee took to the streets of Atlanta and connected with pretty much every organization that they could, encouraging other people to get to know your neighbors, start looking out for each other, pay attention to every child, even if it's not your child, as they walk to and from school. They recorded, they recruited Dr. Joseph E. Lowry, the president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, who was able to get the church involved. And I think a lot of people listening would know that networking through black churches is very effective. The minister began getting other preachers to discuss the murders, like at the end or before their sermons. Between the murder of Taurus Clifford and the committee, they managed to get 450 black and white citizens of Atlanta to get together and just start searching abandoned buildings, lots, forested areas. 400 police officers and firefighters volunteered to go door to door talking to people about suspicious activity. Within three months of this committee forming, these eight black moms, the city expanded the task force that they had created, which only had five people, to 24 people. And they added $100,000 to the budget for that task force to do their job. And they reached out to the FBI for help. The profiler the Fed sent was Royal Hazelwood, who was experienced in kidnapping and serial murder. Now, originally, Hazelwood studied the case from afar in D.C., just going over the basics. And then he went to Atlanta and he had a bunch of black cops show him all of the areas where the kids were abducted, where they were dumped. And he immediately informed the tax force, there's no way this is someone who is white or a member of a supremacist hate group. And he explained that the second that he walked through the community, everyone went still. A random white guy just kind of stuck out like a sore thumb. And hilariously, like, 
when this first happened, he went, what's going on here? And the cops went, we got a honky in the car with us. And so they kind of all looked at that and went, this meant the killer was a black man and it meant he was local. John Glover, the FBI chief in Atlanta at the time, publicly agreed with Roy and said, this killer is someone who is invisible in the black community. This definitely answered a lot of questions about how this guy is just walking through the area sight unseen. But there were still a million questions about kids who grew up in the hood getting tricked into going with a man. I mean, none of these kids were naive enough to take candy from a stranger or get in somebody's big white van. These were the kind of kids who dodged gang activity and drug dealers and other criminals with ease. So what was he doing that was different to lure them? Now, on November 5th, 1980, the U.S. State Attorney General Ben Civiletti led a press conference letting the entire country know that the FBI was working with state and local cops in Atlanta and that President Ronald Reagan himself had taken an interest in this case and wanted it solved. It's almost shocking that while all this is going on, the murders and the abductions don't stop at all. He was The killer here was no way intimidated by more police presence and federal police presence. In fact, let weeks within the task force being created and the committee being created, Darren Glass, 10-year-old, goes missing. He was a foster kid, and his foster family reported him missing on September 14, 1980. His remains have actually never been found. And it does allow for there to be doubt if he was one of the Atlanta child murder victims. But his status as a kid who knew the hard knock life and still disappeared made him worthy of note and added to the list. Now, the community had absolutely had it. Citizens were in a rage. And finally, the city council approves of something called Saturday searches in October of 1980. It, gives per- it gave permission for volunteers to search every abandoned school, wooded area, lot, and anything vacant on every Saturday. Now, where the uh, committee from Camille Bell had been hindered in the past was that they needed permission from property owners to go on to some of these abandoned properties. Saturday searches, those rules did not apply. Everyone was doubtful that this was going to do anything. And the first weekend, that they did a search was when they found Latanya Wilson's body. In fact, Saturday searches proved to be incredibly successful. And we we don't want that because that meant that there were more children being found. Uh, What it did do was force the killer to find a new dumping site further away from town. Now, October 9th brought the missing report of Charles Stevens, a 12-year-old from the neighborhood, He was found a day later, October 10th, in a trailer park five miles away from his home. He had been suffocated, and the police gathered green fibers from his clothes. Aaron Jackson was nine years old, and his dad tried to tell him to stay in the house. But Aaron was fearless. He often went adventuring in the woods or parks of Atlanta. He was in fourth grade, and that meant he was a big kid now. He was known to stop by his neighbor's houses on the weekends and try and get a treat before he headed home. And then his dad would usually find him like taking a nap on the couch. Aaron Sr. came home on November 2nd and saw that his son wasn't home yet. Odd, but he didn't start to worry 
until he turned on the TV and saw a news report that a boy had been found strangled, lying face up in a riverbank. And he had a deep feeling that that was probably his son because Aaron Jr. always came home. He called the police and it was his son. Now they were able to quickly find him because the police were starting to surveil the highways and waterways. Later on, they would go bigger with this mission and prove to be very successful. But in the beginning, they were just starting to keep a little bit of an eye on, uh, on the waterways. November 30th, 16-year-old Patrick Rogers goes missing. At first, they thought he had skipped town because he was being investigated for participating in a robbery. When they pulled his body out of the Chattahoochee River on December 7th, they were like, whoops, we were wrong. Patrick had fought back like some of the other bigger boys, and he had sustained a major head injury, which more than likely killed him. They discovered when doing his autopsy that he had fallen from a great height. And that directed the police to understand that they were right to begin looking at the bridges. 1980, Atlanta had a rather somber Christmas and New Year celebration. The crimes were national news and now they were starting to affect the commerce in Atlanta. Normally, uh, the city had a huge New Year's Eve celebration, but 1980 into 1981, people really didn't show up. The killer waited only three days into the new year before abducting Luby Geter. He was 14, spent most of his time getting money in the neighborhood. He was a really industrious kid, actually, who would buy car deodorizers at the Five and Dime store and then stand on the corner or near the mall and flip them for like 50 cents. He would stand outside the grocery store and charge a fee to carry people's groceries to their houses. And people bought his stuff, even though they knew it was being upcharged, because this was a kid just trying to make a dollar here and there. And it was honest work. He was last seen on a January third and his friends told the police that they saw him talking to a lighter skinned black man wearing a baseball cap with a scar on his face Luby was found on february 5th 1981 in the woods he had also been strangled the police began focusing on the lore they figured that that was the key to figuring out how this killer was getting to these kids this witness description was seen as credible and they put a, comp a composite sketch out in the media. Now they just need someone to come forward. Now the next victim was 15-year-old Terry Pooh. Terry was a lot like Luby. They were older, all about that hustle life. They were also friends. The task force received a report that Terry was missing in early January after he hadn't come home from a burger joint and the police were interested in this. This was the first time there had been a close connection between the victims. And this just couldn't be a coincidence. Terry and Luby had to have known their killer. Terry was found on January 23rd, and he had the most defensive wounds of any victim so far. The police actually wondered if the reason why the killer had a scar on his face a week later when Luby was kidnapped is because Terry had been the one to cause that scar. Another important detail here was that Terry was found 20 miles away. That has so many horrible implications. Now we have to open up the search because the killer is now trying to avoid the bodies being found quickly. It's going to cost more money to do more surveillance in areas further and further out. 
the next move was probably the scariest for Atlanta, which was one child a week started disappearing. Now, Patrick Balthazar, 11, he was last seen at the Omni Entertainment Complex near a phone booth on February 6th. He was found strangled on February 13th behind an office park. Curtis Walker, 13, seen on February 19th, applying for a job at a gun store. Found on March 6th, partially submerged and caught on a log near a bank of the South River. He'd been suffocated. Joseph Bell, not related to Yusef, 15, known as Jojo to his friends. Last seen on March 2nd, leaving the seafood restaurant where he worked under the table. He was seen getting into a white station wagon with a median-complected black man. He was found on April 19th in the South River in Rockdale County. Later, when this would go to trial, one of the kids who played basketball with JoJo and was also there that night said out loud, like, we saw him get into Wayne's car. Unfortunately, this testimony would be heavily scrutinized and its validity because of the age of the witnesses. Doesn't stop, though. Timothy Hill, 13, last seen on March 11th at a rooming house owned by a sex offender. Now, he was found March 30th in the Chattahoochee River. Cause of death asphyxiation. Timothy and Jojo both worked at the restaurant under the table, and they both played ball together. Another connection where two kids knew each other. The man who owned the rooming house was looked into, and they were able to confirm his alibi and also determine that while he was a creep, he wasn't the creep they were looking for. Now, all four of these murders get linked together based on the fibers found on their bodies. And then there was also a potential abduction. An unnamed boy was kidnapped and thrown in the back of a car on February 11th. He managed to escape at a red light and gave him police information that would contribute to finding this suspect. This was an odd change to the narrative, just grabbing a kid off the street and throwing them in the back seat. But Ed Kemper, another serial killer, has spoken at length about how the need to kill is a compulsion. And that compulsion made him do more and more reckless things to get satisfaction. Uh, Ed Kemper talks about how this, you, you want to plan the attack, but also you need to do it now. It's almost like a drug addiction at that point, once they've been doing it for so long. And with this killer doing it once a week, he may have just gotten sloppy and needed to satiate his desires. And that overwhelmed the logical desire to do it as he had been doing before. Unfortunately, something happened here with the press, which was that they found out about the fibers on the bodies. And of course, from this point on, most of the victims are found nude or near nude as a forensic countermeasure to stop the police from being able to get fibers. Now, two things happened in March of 81. The FBI had gotten a little bit tired of the, this is the KKK infiltrating Atlanta uh, conspiracy theory. And they decided they were going to try and talk to all of the kids in Atlanta. And so they put out these questionnaires for every school age child between the ages, less age and more between fourth grade and 10th grade. And they were like, please let us know about any suspicious activity or encounters that you had. 1,600 questionnaires were returned, 977 had information, and that sent Atlanta PD out doing a lot of follow-up interviews. Uh, the public outcry was huge that March. Muhammad Ali 
donated $500,000 to the task force to keep them working. Other celebrities like Gladys Knight and Burt Reynolds donated too. They built a nonprofit that was supposed to help the families, but it really didn't because this was the first time that there had been a nonprofit meant to help the families of serial killer victims. And most of the families ended up not seeing any of that money. Sammy Davis Jr. did a benefit concert with Frank Sinatra in Atlanta. Vice President George H.W. Bush was assigned to coordinate the local police and federal agencies. That one's a head scratcher because they were already coordinated and working together. But I think this was just the White House being like, we need to let America know that we care. Now, I saw that the FBI decided to look into the KKK thing, right? They thought it was obviously super bogus. So they do a secret op for about two months that sends the members of Atlanta PD into the KKK. Uh, Super secret, full of informants, surveillance, phone taps, polygraph tests. They do the whole nine yards. Now, the police were looking at the Luby Geeter case and the KKK because his name had come up in phone calls. So obviously, the local Atlanta KKK knew about this kid and they didn't like him. Unfortunately, a lot of the evidence for the case was destroyed post Wayne Williams conviction, but there is a file on this called the 1800 file. And it shows that they pretty much transcripted everything and then deleted the actual audio tapes. Like I said, in those transcripts, the clan knew about uh, Luby. They didn't like him. They said they wanted to kill a kid every week to continue upsetting the black community. Their intention was, this is a direct quote, to create an uprising among the Blacks. So the KKK were making plans to abduct and kill one child every month to further this agenda. Now, the feds don't think that they ever put this plan into motion. But in 2019, those files were actually released. And it took a lot of time for people to get the feds to release them. And in fact, uh, Atlanta's mayor, uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms has given the police permission to re-examine this entire case with the extra information from the 1800 file. Nothing has changed yet, but that is not to say that it couldn't change in the future. And that some of the victims of the Atlanta child murders that have been attributed to Wayne Williams could have been someone else. Ultimately, though, the feds dropped this investigation of April of 1981 to focus more on their profile, which was that it was somebody in the community. Now, Atlanta brings a town curfew. Nobody who is 16 or under is allowed to go outside unless you have a job. And those hours that you have to stay inside are between 7 p.m. and 6 a.m., seven days a week, no exceptions. Which led to our first adult victim, Eddie Duncan, 20 years old. Last seen March 20th. 1981. Now, it's possible that the killer thought that Eddie was younger. He was a very short man. He also had some developmental delays, which may have made him seem younger in the way that he spoke. Edward was found in the Chattahoochee River on March 31st. Larry Rogers was the next victim, also 20, last seen getting into a car with another black man on March 30th, found on April 9th in an abandoned apartment only six blocks away from his home, also strangled. Michael McIntosh, 23, seen on April 1st, found on April 20th in the South River. 
Jimmy Ray Payne was 21 and just like the other victims, short, smaller build. He went missing on April 22nd, found the Chattahoochee River on April 28th. Now, John Porter was the oldest at 28. And because he was so much older, the police thought that he was least likely to be included. Also because he had been stabbed in an abandoned lot. There was confusion about the fibers on him being different from the other victims, but they ultimately added him to the list as well, found on April 12th. William Barrett was 17 when he went missing. He was last seen on May 11th, 1981. He was found 24 hours later by the FBI on a curb near a wooded area close to his home. A custodian from a local high school who had run out of gas and been walking along the road gave a witness testimony that he saw a man standing near that dump site and then that man had gotten into a white over blue Cadillac. Again, here the police are like, okay, obviously these are all becoming water dumps now. So they expanded the surveillance team to cover all 12 bridges that crossed the Chattahoochee River and the two that crossed the South River on April 27th, 1981. And when I like, this isn't just like, oh, a couple of people come by. This was 24-7 surveillance, which was very expensive. And they were like, we're going to do this for a month and hope we catch something. May 22nd, 1981, the police, police stations near the other end of the bridge hear a loud splash on the James Jackson Parksway, Parkway Bridge at 2.50 a.m. They checked the bridge, and the first car to leave was a light-colored station wagon, and in it was Wayne Williams. They stopped him, questioned him, and the first thing he says to the police is, this must be about those boys. And then he said he was heading back into town because he was a talent scout who had an audition for a young singer named Cheryl Johnson. The number he gave for himself was a lie. And the number he gave for Cheryl was a lie because Cheryl didn't exist. He let them search his car, which he said wasn't his, but belonged to his uncle. And inside there was a black, green, and white blanket, a bag of men's clothes, a bag of women's clothes, and two feet of white nylon rope. They concluded that while this was a little weird, it wasn't proof of a crime. So they let him go. Two days later, the body of Nathaniel Cater, who had gone missing on May 20th, was found by two young men who were fishing. Nate's nude body had floated to the surface. And this was particularly interesting to the police because the last person who had been seen with Nathaniel was Wayne Williams. The medical examiner said that he had been strangled, but there was no trace of any bodily fluids. It was at that moment they placed Wayne Williams on 24-7 surveillance. Part two, our suspect. Wayne Bertram Williams was born on May 17, 1958 to Homer and Faye Williams in Dixie Hills, the very segregated neighborhood in southwest Atlanta, Georgia. Dixie Hills was very typical of segregation in the South in the 1958. Uh, the majority of the businesses were black owned and poor middle class and upper class people still lived in the neighborhood. As we talked about before, by the time that Wayne was older, the area was now almost 100 percent black and very poor. Wayne had a pretty uneventful childhood. Both of his parents were teachers. They stayed married until death. They kept a nice home, didn't abuse themselves or their son. No one did any drugs. Drinking was done in moderation and never around the child. Uh, Homer and Faye adored their only son, and they encouraged him in every aspect of his life. He got all the toys he wanted, 
electronics he wanted. And from a very young age, he showed that he was super into technology and music. In school, Wayne Williams was a top student. Most of the teachers interviewed after his arrest were shocked because they thought that he was someone who would probably have headed off to college. They said he also had a very positive temperament, that he was kind, quiet, smart, respectful, helped everyone, and had a relatively high IQ for someone his age. Now, Wayne was a loner, and he didn't really enjoy spending time with other kids. And when he was younger, he got bullied for his small stature and like very large round glasses that he wore. However, he was a smart kid, and he usually managed to talk his way out of fights and didn't get in trouble. Somehow, the smart tongue managed to net him some friends who thought that he was funny, and that kind of kept the bullies away. When he went into Frederick Douglass High School, where he was student council president, he graduated with top marks. He could have gone to any school that he wanted, but he didn't go to college. He did eventually attend Georgia State University and attempted a business degree for a semester, but he didn't like college. What Wayne was interested in was music. And like I said before, he was really good at technology and music. So his parents would buy him electronic music equipment. His favorite band was the Jackson 5 and he wanted to be just like them. Unfortunately for Wayne, he didn't have any talent for singing or dancing. But he devoted all of his free time as a kid and then a teenager into figuring out how he could be a part of the music industry. At first as a kid, he just learned how to fix radios and other like small musical devices. Then he started charging for the service and had a nice little business for himself. After his parents realized that this was serious, they bought their 16-year-old son all of the equipment that he needed to create his own radio station and broadcast from a room in their house. I don't even know how much money this will cost because from what I understand, Music equipment is outrageously expensive. Good equipment. Once he got familiar with his own radio equipment, he started working part-time at local radio stations, learning the technical and financial side of the business. Wayne impressed a lot of his bosses by being really mature and work-minded versus a normal 17-year-old who was probably chasing girls and running the street. At 1976, at just 18 years old, he took what he learned and decided he was going to become a talent agent. He used every contact he met through the radio for the last two years and added them to his resume to see, made it seem like he was more experienced than he really was. Many of the people on his resume would later say that they had never met him. But regardless, he was able to impress enough people to believe that he had a real talent agency. Now, what Wayne wanted was to build a boy group that was just like the Jackson 5. And he told these young men that he met that he would front the money for a demo and send it to producers that he knew. And once they got a deal from a label, then everyone would get paid. All they had to do was do the work and practice music, right? Now, he did eventually cut a couple of demos with Atlanta Studios, but the studio, studio owner, Kathy Andrews, was like, I don't think I ever saw a band. Now, his plan, he was to call this band Gemini. And that was a really good name because in the 70s, people were obsessed with astrology. And if you know your astrology, Wayne is a Gemini too. Now, he canvassed every area of his neighborhood where his kids hung out. 
putting up flyers, arcades, skate rinks, malls, parks, churches, you name it. These happen to all be the same place where a lot of these kids will get abducted. Now, according to Maine, he sold this group as top shelf, super professional, but really it was a Chitlin Circuit band. And if you've never heard of that term, join the club because I had to Google this myself. Chitlin Circuits are a collection of performers who hit up like Southern and Midwestern venues. And the name was created during the era of segregation. Um, the band, you'd have a band, so music, maybe a comedian and other kinds of acts who all toured together. And this was also mainly marketed towards black people, but also like fairs. Now to make money, actual real money, Wayne was a freelance accident photographer and he sold his photos to the newspapers. He had a police scanner in his car and when he heard that there was an accident, he would show up, photograph it, go home, develop the film and try and flip it before the papers went to print. He also had a video camera long before those were commonplace and he would sell accident video footage to TV stations too. This meant he was reasonably outside at all hours of the night looking for work. Now, one of the weird things in looking into Wayne Williams as a person was that this was a man who was deeply insecure and he wanted to be relevant and taken very seriously. He was ambitious and intelligent, but he didn't use any of his skills in a way that benefited him. He was known to exaggerate his life and just outright lie to reporters about influential how influential he was in the 70s like even now when he's done interviews from his arrest until now he just lies like in some of the sources i found uh stories where he said he was in the national honor society in high school that was a lie he was in jrotc another lie he said he applied to be a cop that was a lie in fact he got arrested in 1976 for pretending to be a cop. Like he had a uniform and he would walk around town. Now those charges were dropped because it was his first offense, but he kept doing that well into the seventies and early eighties, making some people wonder if one of the ways that he convinced children to talk to him was looking like a police officer. And of course we all know kids adore and instantly trust adults in uniform. Uh, Professor Bernard Headley, who's the author of Atlanta Youth Murders and the Politics of Race, wrote about Wayne and how great he was at impersonating an officer, but also he would impersonate other important people, too. Like, the list of his made-up careers was outlandish, but the two that were the most ridiculous was an Air Force fighter pilot, and he would tell people that he was an Air Force fighter pilot, and mind you, he's short and a little chunky. So... Not really somebody you think who's actively in the military. But the worst one is him saying that he was a member of the CIA. And a spy who was trained in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Now in the 90s, he releases this manifesto after he's already been arrested for a while. It is delusional. He talks about how. He was a part of a secret black ops cell in the CIA that specifically hired black children to be killers who were supposed to be dropped into Africa to take down hotspots and warlords. 
most people just kind of read this manifesto and went, all right. But there was a CNN special that aired in 2010. And Soledad O'Brien outright was just like, what is this part of your manifesto? And faced with someone questioning Wayne's weird world that he lived in, he just straight up like said, you can kill someone with your bare hands. And then he refused to talk to her anymore. Like he just couldn't handle someone questioning him or, or poking even the tiniest hole into his weird delusional world. I say all this to say that the man was not well and not as well as he pretended to be. And he lived in a very weird fantasy world where he was able to convince a lot of people that his fantasies were real and that his talent was real. So of course the follow-up to everything that I've told you so far is why did the police think he was the killer? And what happened from that interview on the bridge that has him in prison today and the U.S. thinking he killed 23 children and six grown men? So that leads us to part three, our investigation in the court case. The police decided that the easiest thing to do here was to focus on Nathaniel Cater, the last victim who had been seen with Wayne. And they decided they were going to put Wayne under surveillance and begin looking into Nathaniel's life for some clues as to how he ended up in the river. Now, Wayne didn't have to do this next thing. But he did anyway. So the timeline for here is that June 2nd is when they heard the splash. They stop him. They talk to him at 2.50 a.m. The police say, all right, we're just going to watch him. He seems weird. We're going to watch him. June 3rd, they said to him, hey, can we talk? And Wayne was like, sure, absolutely. There was no legal necessity for this conversation that happened on June 3rd. The interrogation went on for hours. And in every moment of this interrogation, Wayne could have left. And then they said, well, we've listened to you talk for hours. Do you want to do a polygraph test? And Wayne was like, sure, I got nothing to hide. Uh, Richard Ratcliffe was the FBI polygraph expert who did all three of his polygraph tests, all three that he failed. And Richard calls saying to Wayne, after he failed the third test. So you're the guy we've been looking for for two years. Now, I'm sure that a lot of you who follow true crime know that polygraph results are not considered admissible evidence in the USA. However, it wasn't enough for the task force to decide that they had their guy. A lot of people believe that they were short-sighted here and they were too eager to close the case. But for members of the task force, they were like, this seems like the guy. I'm just saying. Um, they decided they were going to continue watching Wayne. They saw him go back home, begin cleaning his home and car. Like we're talking about, this has been within 24 hours of him of the the dumping at the riverside. Now, to most people, this is just normal cleaning, but the police were like, he's destroying evidence, and they needed that evidence to convict him. It was also weird because Wayne and his dad finished cleaning. They took several large boxes and then began driving. They actually drove hours outside of Atlanta to drop the trash at a dump. And when they got home, they began burning stuff too. While they did that several hour long drive, the police requested a warrant for the house. And it was granted surprisingly easily. 
which gave the police access to his house and all of the family cars because he still lived with his parents. They took samples of fibers from every room, the pets, and the cars. Forensic starts running their tests. The Atlantic Public Safety Commissioner, I mentioned before, Lee Brown, goes on this very weird... He releases a public statement. And he's like, we don't want to name any names. And there's probably more than one killer. And this is based off of everyone's experience in law enforcement and the consultants. And we don't have just one person responsible. This does nothing to make any of the parents in Atlanta feel any better. Now, the big item that was taken from Wayne's bedroom in his parents' house was a king-size comforter that contained violent acetate fibers. It takes some time, but these are found on 18 of the victim's remains. White dog hairs with black tips were found on nine of the victim's bodies, which matched the dog, the German shepherd that the Williams family had, and a yellow-green carpet fiber was found on 13 of the victims. Now, for the task force, this was like, we got him. This is it. But in reality, this is all very circumstantial. There were probably hundreds of thousands of people with these items in the U.S. Fact that he was on the bridge, circumstantial. Fact that he didn't have an alibi for any of the murders, circumstantial. He didn't prove that, it didn't prove that he did it. His connection to the bar that they found the victim behind, lots of people perform at that bar. The seafood restaurant that two of the kids worked at, him using it as his mailing address, that was weird, but the composite sketch that they got from Jojo Bell's, uh, listen, there are loads of short black guys with afros and glasses in Atlanta. It was like for everything they had, there was a reasonable answer for it. Now, something happens here next, which is also kind of ridiculous. June 2nd, we have Chris Blash in the water, interview on the bridge. June 3rd, we have interview with the police and search warrant. June 4th, Wayne calls up a bunch of his reporter contacts and says he has information about the Atlanta child murderers and he wants to do... <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just laughing at this because he wants to do a press conference. He lists a couple of requirements. You're not allowed to say my name and you're only allowed to show from like my mouth down. Even if he hadn't done all this, this press conference does not earn him any sympathy. He makes a weird statement saying that some of the kids were in places they shouldn't be. And while it doesn't give anyone license to kill, you're kind of opening yourself up to things. Nothing like victim blaming seven to 14 year olds. Then he rants like full on hardcore about the task force and how these people are out to get him. And that if he gets arrested, it because because he was an easy target. He was the real victim, not these 23 children. He also said that the task force should give him a public apology for what they had put him through yesterday. And with that ammunition, the profilers were pretty sure that this was Wayne Williams and he's too arrogant to leave the city. Like, cause everyone was generally, when you're looking at someone who's done horrible crimes, you think they're going to run, but the profilers went, no, mm -mm. he still thinks he can beat us. So, they just said, we're just going to keep up the pressure and keep watching him. 
However, they did come across one issue. Because of this ridiculous press conference that he did, he had pretty much outed himself to everyone in the community. Most people could tell based on his voice, the people who knew him based on his voice and his height, who it was. And so it just flew through the neighborhood like wildfire. And people started just driving by his parents' house and people walked by his parents' house. And uh, the police reported that Wayne was getting openly hostile with people who got too close and they were worried that he might attack someone. Um, They were also worried that he might grab another victim because he would be stressed out. And uh, unfortunately for some of these killers, when they get stressed is when they grab people. So they ended up fitting his car with a device that's very similar to a low jack today. Um, It had a pretty short receiver, but it, it allowed them to track him from a distance. For the next 17 days, the media camps outside of his house and the task force tails him. They decide to make their move on June 21st after gathering the evidence that they feel is enough to convict. The prosecutor, Jack Millard, felt that he had a best chance at a conviction if they went for two first-degree murder charges, one for Nathaniel Keeter and the other for Jimmy Payne. Jack and the task force pretty much said, listen, it's going to be real hard to get him for murders that started in 1979. Focus on the most recent ones. If we get him off the street, we fixed the overall problem. So they showed up early morning before a lot of people, you know, were camping outside of his house. They took him in. He did not fight. And unbeknownst to Wayne, the Fulton County Sheriff's Department and jail had actually been building a special wing to house him. Because of his crimes against children, they were not going to be able to put him in general population. Even if he hadn't been charged with child murder, court of public opinion assumed him to be the killer. And they needed him to be in some form of isolation. And they needed to be able to watch him 24 hours a day. He was the only inmate in this wing. And he was in isolation from the day he was arrested up until his trial on January 6th, 1982. The only people who he ever talked to were his lawyers and his parents. It's honestly amazing that the trial was actually put together in only six months. The average length of a criminal murder trial is about 582 days in the United States. And it's even longer if you're trying to prepare for the death penalty. Uh, One of the reasons, unfortunately, that he went to trial very fast is because his lawyers were not seasoned enough to take on a case like this. Uh, They tried to get the trial moved due to jurisdiction bias, saying that that it should be in Atlanta because what they said was it should be in Atlanta because there was no way that people outside of Atlanta weren't going to be biased. And I think that was a weird argument because people in Atlanta were going to be biased too. But Uh, Because the body was found in Fulton County, that was where they were going to have the trial. His defense thought that if they could get an all-black jury, that there would be some level of sympathy towards him. Uh, They didn't get the trial moved, but both sides did agree that the jury was going to be sequestered and there would be media restriction for all of them. And I'm sure the eight black and four white jurors, none of them being women and three men, were pretty annoyed with this as... The trial lasted for eight weeks. 
I can only imagine being sequestered for months. How are you supposed to like pay your bills and stuff? I still think about that every once in a while when a big murder trial happens. How are you like, how are you supposed to live? Does the fee go up? Because when I was on a, a jury trial, we got like 80 bucks. I think it was like, that was like the week. The week might have been 150. It was not a lot of money. Now, Fulton County said that they would they were going to choose the judge through a randomized computer system, and Judge Clarence Cooper was chosen. Now, Judge Cooper was an impressive man who was going to be fair and just, and he was Black. Now, some people thought that was going to be good for Wayne and that Cooper would show some kind of sympathy. Others said he would be harsher because he was trying to make a point about Black-on-Black crime. Uh, but really, one of the things that made it seem like it wasn't so random is that... Uh, Judge Cooper had ties to the district attorney. They had worked together in the past. So the trial starts. Prosecution brings forth just this mountain of physical evidence. They interview all the children who said they had seen Wayne with the victims. The carpet evidence was particularly damning because that particular carpet and fiber was manufactured in Dalton, Georgia for only seven years between 1967 and 1974. The odds of finding that specific carpet in Atlanta were 1 in 7,792, which, if you're good at statistics, would mean that there were roughly a few hundred houses that would have been outfitted with this in Atlanta. That's still a lot of people, a lot of potential people, but that does narrow things down from hundreds of thousands of people to potentially a couple hundred. They introduced the hair and the blood samples, which did link him to some of the Atlanta child murder victims. Now, I have to say this as a child of attorneys. If Wayne had had better lawyers, I don't think a lot of this would have been admissible. He wasn't on trial for any of the murders of the children. So it kind of seems ridiculous that the prosecution was allowed to parade all of this information out about a case that the defendant had never been arrested for. And it definitely prejudiced the jury. The judge allowed it because he said that it set up a pattern of murders and a pattern of behavior for Wayne Williams. Like I said, I don't think this would have flown in today's court. But that said, the second thing that hurt Wayne Williams was just how freaking weird he was after he was interviewed. That weirdness, the weirdness about his life, the stories he had been telling people, how he used to tell kids in the neighborhood that he knew how to kill a man. All this stuff came out on the stands and the prosecution did a really good job of just telling the people in the courtroom, this guy's a weirdo. Also, he hangs out with a lot of children. And on one hand, that seems like that's small, right? But just injecting the notion of this grown adult hangs out with children sets some prejudices up for people. Now, some of the witnesses got on stand and said things that were impossible to prove. That Wayne was gay. He was definitely a pedophile. Also, these things shouldn't have been admissible in court. Um, he wasn't on trial for doing anything with a child. And I know there's an argument that this information could stand as testimony as the kind of person he was. But honestly, it was there to make him less likable in the eyes of the court. There was some truth in that potential queer baiting were because Nathaniel Cater was openly bisexual and he and Wayne had been out on a date or what seemed like a date before he was murdered. 
But still, that shouldn't have mattered outside of setting up the fact that the two were there the night before, together before he died. But being a gay guy in the early 80s still wasn't a walk in the park. So they were definitely kind of laying the groundwork that Wayne Williams, he was a gay guy. He hung out around kids. You know what that means, right? Now, this still shouldn't have mattered, right? The profilers come in and they say that the killer had to be intimately familiar with Atlanta and would either be unemployed or have a job that gave him freedom to roam the area wherever and whenever he wanted. They said that the changing MO of the killer was due to his gain confidence and sophistication as a murderer. The defense comes in, and it wasn't the best. Now, Wayne didn't have the money, like some people in history, to hire a rock star legal team. And so he was given two court-appointed attorneys who hadn't defended someone for murder before. Mary Welcome did her best. She had the most trial experience of the defense team, but it was her first murder trial. Her assistant, Tony Axum, had experience in major crimes cases, but Wayne actually requested that he be removed before the trial started, and we don't know why. Alvin Binder replaced him, and Wayne liked him because he was an aggressive lawyer when it came to cross-examination. Now, the entire defense hinged on him trying to create reasonable doubt in a courtroom where he had already been convicted by the public opinion of an entire nation. They wanted just one lawyer, one juror, to look at Wayne and go, well, we're not sure he did it. The defense also let Alvin spend a considerable amount of time badgering the child witnesses. Like, he did his job, which was to make the testimony from the children seem incredible. But it didn't gain any courtroom favors or empathy. Like, making children feel bad. You know what I mean? <laughs> making kids feel bad just made everybody in the courtroom kind of not like the lawyer. Then Wayne demands that he defend himself. His cross-examination takes three days. We're talking like 12 to 16 hours of cross-examination. That would make anyone stressed out. But by day three, Wayne appeared exhausted and he was irritated. He started yelling at the prosecutor on the, in the courtroom on day three, insulting him. Years later, Wayne would tell a reporter that he yelled as a way to show dominance because his attorney said that he was being too passive. It proved to be a horrible choice. The prosecution has shown that he wasn't as stable as he pretended to be, and he could definitely lash out. While that's normal behavior when for like a regular person, when you're on trial for murder, you don't want the jury to look at you and think, ah, that's the anger of a killer. After that, the defense couldn't really do much. His parents testify that he'd been home with them when Nathaniel Carter was killed. But of course, no one believes the family of the murderer. They're like, you would lie for your son. You love him. On February 27th, 1982, after only 11 hours of deliberation, they came back with a guilty verdict. Both counts of first-degree murder. Uh, Wayne wasn't surprised. Wayne's father actually walked past the prosecution table and called them sons of bitches as he walked out of the courtroom. 
He was given two life sentences to be served in the Georgia Department of Corrections. Um, Wayne Williams was actually never tried for the Atlanta child murders, but the murders did stop after he was arrested. He currently resides at the Telfer State Prison in Georgia. He has applied for parole every time it's been available to him. And the last time he was denied was November 19th, 2019. He's up for parole again in November of 2027, and he maintains his innocence. As for the rest of us who look at this case, there are still so many unanswered questions. Why did they close the KKK investigation? What will the 1800 files tell us about this as people continue to start sifting through all these documents? In the recent years, the FBI has rechecked their hair evidence, and they actually did find that some of it matched Wayne Williams and others did not. In fact, one of the hair samples was rated as 98% not African-American and 100% not Wayne, which of course causes doubt, right? We can't definitively say that Wayne Williams was the Atlanta child murderer. Personally, I wonder if he was responsible for some of the crimes and there were copycats that he ended up being responsible for. I would love to know what a lot of you think about this. Um, Thank you for listening. Uh, This was a long one just to hear me talk and have no one else talking. But if you did enjoy this, I'd love to know your opinion. And also, we'd love for you to consider supporting our Patreon or merchandise and just helping us make this bigger and better. And I hope you have a good weekend.